if I had to list like the five top questions we get asked, that's probably number one. <laughs> so that used to be the old school strategy. We give our house to our children for a dollar. So there's a there's um, couple reasons we actually don't recommend that. And the first is what we call the four Ds, divorce, debt, disability, and death. So what that means is if I were to give my house to my child, there's a lot of risk involved in that because now my child owns that home. Even more risk if I'm still living there. Um, you know, what if my child becomes disabled and needs some sort of benefits? What if they get into debt and they have creditors? What if they become disabled? Did I say disabled already? I guess I did. I'm divorced. <laughs> um, what if they get divorced? Because that's going to be part of the potential divorce settlement at that point in time, which is a huge concern we hear from a lot of our clients. Um, and ultimately, you know, what happens if my child passes away before well, I do? You know, what does their will say? Do they have a will? Like Jenna mentioned on, you know, a lot of things that happen there. And even if those aren't enough to kind of make you think about what your other options are for your house, the biggest risk really is Medicaid. Because we never know when somebody's going to need long-term care. Um, there's something called the five-year look back. And I'm just going to kind of jump into this conversation now because it really is relevant here. The five-year look back is when anybody moves into a nursing home and then asks the state to pay for their care, then the state looks back five years make sure they haven't given away anything. So anything you give away, you do not receive fair consideration for. So you can buy whatever you want. You can go on as many vacations as you want, have vehicles, all of those things. But anytime you give things away, what happens is the state looks back and they um, tally up all of those gifts. Now a gift for Medicaid purpose is anything over $500 a month. So some of you be thinking, wait, I thought it was like 12,000 or 15,000. That's a different gifting guideline that we're gonna talk about later. When we're dealing with Medicaid, $500 a month is all you can give away. So the state's gonna tally up all those gifts and they're either gonna say, well, you don't qualify for five years from that gift, or there are strategies and ways to kind of get that penalty period triggered. So an example with a house with this that we run into is somebody gives their house to their child and then they unexpectedly need care or sometimes people do it because they think it's the right thing to do when they start getting sick because they got bad advice or they just, you know, people don't usually do things out of ill intentions. It's just it's really complicated and hard to know all these rules. So let's say your house is valued at $100,000. So if your house is valued at $100,000, you give it to your child and you need nursing home care in the next five years. We divide the, gift, the value of the gift of $100,000 by the average cost of care, which right now in Pennsylvania is $10,700. And the state then says that that's about nine months. So it's nine months the state of Pennsylvania would not pay for your nursing home care. So in some situations, that's okay because that individual says, well, great, I gave my house to my kid. You know, I know there's other risks out there, but I gave my house to my kid and I have enough money to privately pay for nine months of nursing home care. But here's the other side of this. Your house was your only asset. You gave it to your kid, now you need nursing home care. Now, the, you know that um, you can't private pay for nine months of your own care, because that's about, could be $90,000 at $10,000 a month for care. 
you don't have the money, your son says, well, I'm not doing anything about it. You gave me the house. I'm not giving it back. I'm not paying for your nursing home care. Um, then there's a couple things that could happen. One, nursing homes are really busy in our areas. They're putting you at the bottom of the waiting list if they're even going to accept you at all. You may be really, really sick and you may not even get admitted to a nursing home. Or if you do, it might not be the nursing home of choice. You could move hours away because it might be necessary for that care right now. Um, and then there's still gonna be a bill for that care. And there is something in Pennsylvania that if you can't pay for your care and there's been gifts or you have a child that might have resources, called the filial responsibility law that says the nursing homes do have the option to choose to um, sue children for their parents' nursing home payments. So there's a lot of risks for your child again in this situation. Um, and maybe you kind of, you're mad at them now anyway, so it might be okay, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, there's a lot of risks involved by giving your house to your child for a dollar. Um, like I said, the divorce, debt, disability, death, but really the biggest one's the Medicaid and how does that play overall into your plan and what your goals are. Um, you know, the five-year look back is a little bit tricky because we could all be sitting here today. Everybody here looks really healthy. It's likely that you'll get through the five-year look back if you, you know, need care at all for the future, but sickness and illness happen. Like we never know who we're talking to today. They might have a healthcare crisis within the next five years. So it's always really important when we're planning to figure out the best way to gift our assets to our beneficiaries or our children or whoever that may be. Um, so we actually take a little bit of a different outlook on gifting. Um, and Kyle, if it's okay, I kind of just, I'm going to shift this to Jenna. And um, I think this is a good time to talk about, well, what if I do want to give my house to my child? Or what if I do want to have an annuity or an investment or whatever it may be? How do I get them to my children now, maybe, while protecting it from my potential long-term care costs? And the answer is irrevocable trust. And that's kind of um, usually a scary um, topic because people don't really understand how they work. And I'll tell you, Jenna has a, you know, we do these irrevocable trusts every day, and Jenna has a really easy, simple way to explain them. And we do try to make them as simple as possible. <laughs> So Jen, I'm going to hand it back over to you if you want to tell everybody a little bit about these irrevocable trusts and how they work. Yeah, sure, sure. So like Kristen mentioned, it has to be an irrevocable trust. So only irrevocable trusts in Pennsylvania offer creditor protection from creditors like the nursing home. So a lot of people have revocable trusts for different things. They're not doing anything when it comes to protecting assets from the cost of long-term care. So it would have to be irrevocable. And we have a lot of clients that hear, they first hear that irrevocable word and they get a little nervous, you know, because you got, you've worked hard for these assets and you don't want to just have to tuck these assets away in some irrevocable, you know, something and not be able to touch them or use them for anything. And Kristen and I use these types of trust day in and day out. And I can tell you that we structure these trusts to give you as much flexibility and power over the assets as possible. So you still, just because they're, they're irrevocable does not mean that these assets are untouchable. There's a lot of things that you can still do. Typically, when we set up a trust like this, we would name you as what's called the trustee. So basically, you're in charge. So for example, let's say we decided to transfer your house into one of these trusts. 
if at some point in time you decided that you wanted to transfer or sell your house, maybe downsize to a smaller house, you could do so. As trustee, you could sign off on the paperwork and you wouldn't need me, you wouldn't need Kristen, you wouldn't need anybody else's approval. You could sell that house on your own. My only recommendation would be to put the new house into the trust name so that it stays protected, so that we're not undoing anything that we're trying to do at this point. And also, let's say, you know, it wasn't a house. Let's say you had, um, maybe you received a large inheritance from someone and you just had a nice savings account that you aren't really doing too much with at this point and you wanted to protect that. Well, we would just change the owner of that account to the trust and you could either let that savings account sit in the trust name, you know, for a rainy day, or if something came up, like if you had a big vacation that you always wanted to take and you wanted to use those funds, you know, there's, there's ways to actually pull that money back out of the, out of the trust account and use it on a vacation. Uh, we've had clients use those funds on medical bills. You know, there's a lot of different options that you have in pulling funds back out of the trust account. Now, don't get me wrong. We don't typically like to put like your checking accounts that you use day in and day out. It usually does not make sense to transfer an account like that into one of these trusts because you need ready access to an account like that so that you can pay your monthly expenses. You know, you can use that account for whatever you need to whenever you need to and there's no hoops to jump through. Mm -hmm. But maybe accounts that are just kind of sitting there and you're not doing too much with at this point in time, those usually do make sense to transfer into one of these trusts. So yeah. when you put this when you put the assets into the trust, like who holds the proverbial key to, to get this mm. to unlock the trust? That's a good question. So really the only downside to one of these trusts is that if it when it comes to pulling money out of one of these trust accounts, typically we can't let you do that yourself. Because if you have ready access to these trust funds and you can basically pull money out whenever and use it on whatever you want at any point in time, then your creditors, like the nursing home possibly down the road, they can say, well, you're paying all these other people and doing what you want with this money. We want you to pay our bills. So instead, what we do is we just appoint two people that you trust as what we call trust protectors. And, and basically, if you need money out of your trust account, you just ask your trust protectors to pull the money out for you and they can just give it to you or they can pay for whatever it is for you. Now, keep in mind, you're in charge of everything. All these trust protectors do when you ask them is just pull money out of the account and give it to you. And really, it could be anybody you trust. But let's say at some point in time that you ask your trust protectors to pull money out of the trust account and they don't listen. Well, we, we maintain, we, we give you the power to be able to change who your trust protectors are. So, you know, if you name two children and they aren't listening to you, then we can change them to two other people that actually will listen to you and you trust again. So there's... Like I said, we've tried to think of anything and everything when it comes to these trusts. And I feel like at this point in time, we've probably seen most of these situations out there. One of the, I don't know why I always think about this, but one of the, one of the oddest situations, I guess, that we've had is there was one large family farm with 10 children. So that's <laughs> a very interesting situation. Um, but to be honest, it, we made it work at the end of the day. You know, not everybody got along ever. But, um, but we, but it did work out. So, I mean, there's always a way we just, sometimes it takes a little bit of time to figure out how it will work in your situation, depending on what your needs are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, something that I hear all the time is, 
you know, my neighbor so-and-so, they have this trust and it does this and I think I need the same thing. Well, to be honest with you, their trusts are used for so many different purposes. Um, it really depends on what your assets look like, how much assets you have, what type of assets you have. It depends on your family structure. It depends on how you want things to be distributed to your beneficiaries. It depends on what your health is like. There's so many different considerations that we make when we're trying to figure out whether a trust is a good option for you or not. And if it really doesn't economically make sense for you, you know, Kristen and I are going to tell you, you know, this might not make sense, but you know, look at these other options that you have. And those could be a lot of different things, whether it's long-term care insurance or, you know, looking at different types of facilities. So there, there are lots of different options, but um, some of the common purposes that we see for trusts are obviously the asset protection or their long-term mm -hmm. care planning. So that's probably the big one, but also sometimes for blended families, um, we'll use trusts for blended families. Um, if you're afraid of your beneficiaries receiving a large, one large inheritance from you, and maybe you'd rather spread that out to them over time. Right. Can you think of anything else, Kristen, off the top of your head? I didn't have anything written down for that. No, no. I think, mo I mean, most of the time we're dealing with for the asset protection mm -hmm. situation, whether it's for protecting um, for down the road, if you need care, or really in that crisis situation. But, um, you know, I would say right behind that would be the blended families and making sure those distributions get to where they need to go to. Most of the blended families we see, I, I actually hate that word, um, because I feel like it's kind of a, a bad word. I don't know. Because I'm, my mom's remarried, like my stepdad's just like my dad, you know, and um, and, and that's how I think a lot of the people we work with are, um, some not, <laughs> but you know, in, in a second marriage, a lot of times, um, or sometimes, you know, the, if somebody came in with children, they want to make sure their children are guaranteed something and not everything to their spouse, but they want to make sure their spouse is taken care of, or maybe not. Maybe everything goes to the spouse. And even though the spouse isn't the biological parent, they want everything to go to those step kids. You know, we see it a lot of different ways. But the trusts are really important when we are dealing with um, families like, fa trying to get away from that word now, um, families like that, because um, it really allows to follow the estate plan, because what, what does get messy is when we're meeting with people after one of the um, individuals in the couple don't have capacity. So we might be looking at a will that they put in place like 40 years ago, maybe even before this marriage or right when they entered into this marriage. And the spouse who we, we know is probably telling us the truth is saying that's not what he wanted. There's not a whole lot we can do. So, you know, being able to make sure those documents are up to date or having the right documents in place is really important for those family situations. 